The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Amen. Let's pray together. Our great and loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your care for us. Thank you for your provision for us. You've provided for us physically in giving us life and breath. You've provided for us spiritually in the rich abundance of your Son's mercy to us. We ask that we would indeed have thankful hearts and would devote ourselves to you to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. Father, we come to you with many needs. We are in need in in all sorts of ways. We're totally dependent on you, totally contingent for our existence and certainly for our blessing as your creatures. But we also have particular needs and burdens that are weighing upon us. Father, we would ask that you, as the God of all comfort, would be a comfort to Brenda Benson and to her family even now. We ask that you would minister to them by your spirit, that you would encourage Brenda, that you would enable us who know her to rally around her and help her, minister to her in whatever ways we can. We pray that she would rest in your sovereignty, in your goodness. We ask that this sobering reality might be a reminder to each of us of the brevity of life, of the necessity of repentance. Father, today, if we hear your voice, may we not harden our hearts. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. In that same vein, we also pray for Mrs. Curdo. We thank you for her ministry. We thank you for her testimony of faith in Christ and for the way in which she has poured herself out, both here at the seminary and at the church and in her family, in her home. Father, what an example she's been to us. What an example she still is to us. But as she goes through this hour of great need, we ask that you might glorify yourself in sustaining her. We we would pray as we have been praying that you might see fit to glorify yourself in her healing. What a great testimony that would be. And yet, Father, we know that this may not be your will, that you may choose to glorify yourself in other ways. May she and Dr. Curdo and the rest of us rest in that. And we do ask that your will would be done. Whatever it is that you have for her, please strengthen her for the tasks at hand. Her life is a testimony of the way in which you have given her grace to meet whatever challenges she's faced. And may these potentially last days offer the same testimony of your sustaining grace. We also rejoice with David and Jasmine over this uh, impending birth very soon. We pray that you would continue to watch over mother and child. We pray that uh, the baby might be delivered safely. We rejoice with them, but we also pray that you would sustain them through the, the, the often difficult time of delivery as in fact, it may even need to uh, be, there may even need to be an induction on Friday. Father, give the doctors wisdom and clarity and may We, along with them, rejoice in you for this gift of life. 
We have so much to rejoice in today. We have so much to be thankful for. We are thankful for your word, which is alive and active and through which your spirit works. We would ask you to work in and through us uh, by your word. Give us open ears to hear from you, soft hearts to respond. May you convict us of sin and train us in righteousness and thoroughly equip us for every good work as we open your word together. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're, we're nearly at the end of this book. Been many uh, delays and fits and starts, but we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. So we'll, we'll look at that whole chapter. It's 10 verses long. I'll read the text. And then we will ask the Lord's blessing once more on his word and look at it more closely together. Ecclesiastes 11, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 10. Remember, as I read and as you follow along, this is the word of God. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which way will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Pray. Our God and Father, once again, we give thanks for your word and ask that you administer to us through it. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the common approaches to the book of Ecclesiastes, in fact, for a period of time in commentaries, it was probably the most common approach to the book of Ecclesiastes, but, a, but an approach, I should say, that I think we must reject, and I've said this throughout our study, is to see Ecclesiastes as some sort of failed attempt to find meaning apart from God. So what some commentators will suggest is that the book of Ecclesiastes is one individual's journey, a wise man's journey, uh, guided by the Lord to find some meaning apart from the Lord. And yet I think again and again, what we've seen in the book of Ecclesiastes, and certainly we see it quite clearly in chapter 11, is that that's not the framework of the book at all. In fact, the writer assumes the work of God throughout. It's one of the bedrock assumptions of the book that God is at work in his providence and that God is sovereign over all things, that, that God is a judge that we will one day face. In fact, that's made explicit here. That kind of book, the kind of book that some commentators think this is, might be an interesting book, sort of like the first part 
of Augustine's confessions while he try, where he tries to seek meaning, running away from the Lord. There might be some, some good in that, but Ecclesiastes frequently mentions God in his pursuits. He assumes that God is there. And, and furthermore, it's worth mentioning that he's not seeking meaning in the philosophical sense that we normally think of it. He's really seeking something substantial, something to hang on to. That's why that phrase, which is not translated this way in the ESV, but I think would be translated well as merest breath, vanity of vanities, is so significant in the book. He's looking for something that is beyond a mere breath. And in that quest, he comes up rather empty because he sees that all of life has that quality to it. But God is in view the whole time. Now, it's especially important to remember that when we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. In fact, I would say there are three truths, three bedrock truths that undergird everything in this text. Two of them are found in verse 5. Verse 5 is a pivotal verse in this text, and it illustrates the first bedrock truth that everything else uh, stems from, and that's the sovereignty and the providence of God. Look at what he says. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Now, this is axiomatic in Ecclesiastes and in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, that God is in control of all things and God is working out all things according to his plan. We know that this is the case. We know that uh, the New Testament teaches us clearly that it is in Christ that everything is held together. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We know throughout the Bible that God works in and through inanimate objects. We see that in Psalm 148 and Job 37. We know that God works even with animals. Psalm 104, Matthew 6. We know that even seemingly random events, the, the roll of the dice, the casting of the lot is in the hand of the Lord, Proverbs 16, 33. We know that on a big scale, God is in charge of all the affairs of nations. Psalm 22, Acts 17. We see that illustrated in, in passages like Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar in his pride is lifted up against the Lord, and the Lord in an instant brings him low. It's true that the, the affairs of the king are in the hand of the Lord. We know that God works through all human actions, including the sin of those who crucified Jesus. You know this text well, but it's worth reminding ourselves of it in Acts 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is sovereign over all things. It's the work of God who makes everything. John Calvin puts it this way. Thieves and murderers and other evildoers are the instruments of divine providence. And the Lord himself uses these to carry out the judgments that he has determined with himself. And then he goes on to say this isn't an excuse for them, of course. Uh, they're, they're fully responsible, but nonetheless, they are instruments of God's divine providence. 
Now, I think we need to take a step back and ask ourselves, since this is such a bedrock assumption of this passage, you won't understand this passage without having that assumption firmly in your hands. We have to ask ourselves, how confident are you in this? How well do you know this? Do you know for certain what the Bible says to be true, that for those who are loved by God, he works all things together for their good, that he who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not, together along with him, freely give us all things? Paul's applying the truths of God's providence, particularly to times of suffering and times of difficulty. But that bedrock assumption, it's the assumption of all of Scripture, it's the teaching of all of Scripture, has to be held firmly in our minds as we come to this text. There's a second truth that undergirds this text, and we won't understand the rest of the teaching of the text without it. Not only is God sovereign over all things, not only is God governing all things by his providence and according to his good will, but that will that providential working of God is in some ways inscrutable to us. His paths, the Bible tells us, are beyond tracing out. His ways are not our ways. Deuteronomy 29.29, the the passage that I wish were, were embossed at the top of every theology classroom. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? This is compared here to the entering of the spirit into a a child in the womb. We refer to these things as the miracle of life or the mystery of life. And in fact, there's a sense in which that's absolutely true. It is a great mystery to us. And the writer of Ecclesiastes takes this mystery which confronts all of us in one form or another in our lives that we see played out over and over and over again with the birth, with the conception and birth of each new child. This this great mystery, he says, this is the way it is with God's work in everything. It's mysterious. It's not known to us. It's something that happens and we we trust in it but we don't fully grasp it or understand it he touches on this again in verse 9 as well when he says that god's watching everything god's going to judge everything and you don't always fully understand it. and that's really the third truth before we even get into the teaching of this text the third truth the axiomatic truth of this text is that God will judge all of us. We see it most clearly in verse 9, but we've seen it before in in the text of Ecclesiastes. Now, this is so clear and so plain in the Bible that we see even in the tradition of Judaism, in the apocryphal books, it it is considered to be a a sort of buttress, a cornerstone of of faith. I was reading a definition that Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Beth El in New York gave of Judaism. What's what's the axiomatic truth of Judaism? He said this, uh, the, the, the end of history is conceived to be the execution of divine judgment 
upon all the nations on the earth. He said that's, that's the, the central truth, that there is going to be a divine judgment on the nations that will take place on the earth. And, and you know, of course, that this was central to apostolic preaching as well. When Peter describes the preaching instructions that Jesus gave his apostles, he said this, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. That's the first part of the apostolic preaching message as Jesus instructed his disciples, that Jesus Christ is the judge of all the living and the dead. Jesus himself testifies to this with great clarity. As the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also has to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment. God is your judge. God is sovereign. And his ways are beyond finding out. Now, if that's all that this text taught us, it would give us three pillars to build our life upon. It would give us three truths that would help orient us in any passage of Scripture dealing with any instructions that the Scripture gives. But what we find is that these three basic truths, these foundational truths of Scripture, actually for Solomon, for the inspired preacher in Ecclesiastes, lead him to two basic instructions for life. Now notice that neither of these instructions removes the, the reality of life being the merest breath. None of these things guarantee that you'll be able to uh, get that you'll be able to know what the future holds after you die, that you'll be able to control the span of your life. Those things are beyond your control. You're not going to be able to grab a hold of those things at all. But nonetheless, these are some of the final instructions he gives to those who are living in light of those three basic truths. Now, what's the first instruction? The first instruction really comes in verses 1 through 6. It's, it's contained poetically in verses 1 through 4, and then 5 and 6 expands upon it in more of a prose fashion. And I would put it this way. I would summarize it this way. The writer to Ecclesiastes says, in light of these truths about God and God's purposes and God's providence, keep trying, keep uh, working at many things, even if to you the outcome may look inauspicious. You know, I'm struck by this because at various points in the year, I have to look at historical documents from our seminary. And one of the things that's very striking when you do this, and this would be true, I'm sure, of any institution like ours, one of the things that's so striking about the early documents is that you realize that the, the men who founded a place like this weren't entirely certain of what was going to happen. They had ideas and ideals in their minds. They, they understood what biblical teaching was, and they understood the implications of that. But none of them could say with certainty what the outcome would be. In fact, it's very clear in the, in the earliest days, there were outcomes that they did not expect at all. Ways in which God blessed that they didn't expect and ways in which the path ahead had twists and turns 
that none of, this, none of them anticipated. It's easy to look back retrospectively and to say, well, of course they, they had the vision they had. Of course they made the sacrifices they have to see the fruit that's been borne by it. But none of that was clear at the time. And that's often the way it is in our lives and even in our ministries, which is why the writer to Ecclesiastes says, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Now, particularly what he's talking about here is pouring out yourself in service to others. It's clear that these aren't self-centered ambitions that he's encouraging us to pursue. Verse 2 makes that clear. He's talking about ambitions, a godly ambition that benefits others and is for the glory of God. Because he says, give a portion to seven or even to eight. You do not know what disaster may happen on the earth. He's really talking about the kind of thing that Jesus speaks of when he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Be rich in good works toward all men. And we know that this kind of ambition can often get intermingled in our own hearts with selfishness. And the Bible is clear that we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or out of vain conceit. But isn't it also true that the Apostle Paul says things like this, it's always been my ambition to preach Christ where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Or when Paul speaks about his own ambition in life, his own striving in life, whatever gain I had, I counted for as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He says, I, I haven't already attained this, but I press on toward this high calling. And Paul elsewhere in second Corinthians speaks of ambition in just this way. We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent to be pleasing to the Lord. God requires as our creator everything from us. All that we have is his. There's not a part of you that's off limits. There's not an ability of yours that you can simply turn in and use for yourself. There's no aspect of, your, of the resources he's given or the time that he's given that is not rightfully his. And so what does the Bible teach us? The Bible teaches us to always be engaging in the work of the Lord. To always be, to have this kind of godly ambition in our lives. William Carey, of course, famously said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And that's, I think, a useful and biblical slogan, particularly when we think about our ministry. I think any one of us who has been in the work of the ministry for any length of time would say, there are things that we gave ourselves to that we thought would be a great, a great usefulness, very fruitful. And looking back, we're not exactly sure how they were used. But there were equally things to which we've applied ourselves, which have seemingly borne great fruit, and we never would have expected it. So the attitude that the writer of Ecclesiastes has for us is, cast your bread on the waters. You'll find it after many days. You don't know precisely what God is doing in the world or precisely how God will use the sacrifices you make, the gifts and abilities he's given to you. 
But God is at work in the world. God is sovereign over all things. God's spirit is working through his word. And so you can be confident that he will accomplish his purposes. And so it's for us to give ourselves fully to the task uh, that that he's entrusted to us. We know that God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means. And the means that God uses to do the work that he's given us to do in the church is very often our pouring out of ourselves and our use of our gifts and our ideas and our godly ambition to attempt great things for God. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Uh, But you can be confident that God is at work both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Pour out every aspect of yourself for the Lord in this way. Work hard as unto him. The second truth that comes from these realities of God's sovereignty, of the inscrutability of his providence, and of the judgment of God, which will come, we will all face Jesus Christ one day. The second application from that, the second implication, we might say, that the writer gives to us is in verses 7 through 10. And it's a note that has been struck throughout Ecclesiastes. And it's a somewhat puzzling note and might even initially seem to cut against the grain of everything he's just said. But nonetheless, it's critically important. I would summarize it this way in verses 7 through 10. Enjoy the time and the benefits that the Lord gives to you, because they may not last. Look at what he says in verse 7. Light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Look at verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the way of your heart and the sight of your eyes. We're supposed to enjoy the things that God has given to us. Life is a gift. Even if you're suffering in this life, it's a gift to you to be alive. We're contingent beings all the way down. Our very existence, our very breath is dependent upon God who gives it to us. And therefore, we have to view every breath, every new day, every experience as a gift from him a gift from our loving Heavenly Father, a gift from our Creator to be used for His glory. He mentions a few specific things. In verse 7, he mentions each day and particularly the sunlight that we have in each day. How prone we are to wake up in the morning and to think nothing of the fact that we've been given a new day by God. A new day, of course, that brings His mercies, which are new every morning, but a new day that brings us life itself. How prone we are to walk outside and ignore the fact that the sun is shining, things are growing, we're taking in breath, our heart is beating. These are all gifts from the Lord for our enjoyment, and we we ought to give thanks to him for that. Similarly, in verse 9, he mentions particularly the strength of your youth. It's often said that youth is wasted on the young, and what's meant by that is you don't realize how good it is until it's gone. You look back and you say, I wish I had the strength I had before. 
I'm always sore. I'm always aching. I don't sleep well. I can't eat the way I used to eat. And these things all change. And and you, you didn't realize how good it was. You didn't realize what kind of energy you have. You look back on others and, and, and you see the, the blessings of, of youthfulness and of being young in the ministry and, and, and having a new family and new friendships that will last with you for the rest of your life. It's a great privilege. Whatever stage of life you're in, rejoice. And rejoice particularly, oh young man, in your youth. It just shows the, the darkness and hardness of our hearts that at whatever stage we find ourselves, we seem to be wishing for another state. When you're young, you want to be older and more accomplished and perhaps have more resources or more, uh, more notoriety of some kind. When you're older, you look back to the strength of your youth. Well, the Bible calls us, of course, to contentment, and to be thankful, to rejoice in all circumstances. But if you are young, rejoice in your youth. In fact, he says, put away the normal worries of the world. One of the chief regrets that men have when they reach the end of their life is that so many of the things that they worried so much about were either self-centered or relatively insignificant. They were meaningless. All these things I was concerned about, all these things that that kept me awake at night, all all these perceived slights and all these worries about finance, all these things seem so small and insignificant in retrospect. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, gain that wisdom now. Cast your burdens on the Lord, for he cares for you. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your request known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't wait till you're on your deathbed to wish you had done that. In the previous 70 years, the writer says, walk in joy now. Walk in thanksgiving in the days that God gives to you. I think we would all have to say that if these weeks, this semester here in our little corner of the world have taught us anything or should have taught us anything, It should have taught us about the unpredictability and the brevity of life. I think we've all been struck by that over the past weeks, and we should be. So what's the answer that wisdom gives to this predicament? The brevity of life, the unpredictability of the days that God gives us. Well, one of the answers is enjoy what the Lord gives you today, this week, this semester, in your studies. Take it all in. And work while the day is still here. Night will come. He mentions this in verse 9. Let let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. And Paul says much the same thing. Night will come. Whether the night of death. And who among us knows when that day will be. Or the end of history itself. Night will come when we can't labor in the way that God's given us to labor now. When there will be different work for us to do to glorify the Lord, but it won't be the work of proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ to those who have an opportunity still to repent. The Lord in in his providence uses our work and our godly ambition to accomplish his purposes in the world right now. 
while it is still today. And yet we take comfort again, returning to these basic axioms of the truths that we know about God's providence and God's work in history. I think it's said very concisely and clearly in our confession. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence. We know that to be true. According to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. And what's the end of all of this? Why do we pour ourselves out and do so with joy? Why can we cast our burdens on the Lord and enjoy the day that he's given us right now? Because he's doing all of this to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. This is why he can say at the end of verse 10, in the midst of life, remove vexation from your heart. God is sovereign. God is in control. And God is a God of goodness, mercy, and he gives us strength for the days in which we find ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, again, we give you thanks for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Restore us and teach us by your word, we ask even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.